0: The following opinions expressed within the content are solely the speakers. And do not reflect the opinions and beliefs of Child Free Media Limited or its affiliates. Hello again, listeners. Welcome to another episode of... And the cradle will fall. A child-free look at true crime. I'm your host, Jen, a.k.a. Child-Free Sister. Now, if you know anything about me and my relationship with true crime, then you know that my weapon of choice, pun intended, for detailed true crime knowledge is the most dangerous weapon of them all the book i mean uh, books are weapons they are still being banned more than guns are these days but let's not get political just yet so yeah for me books come first then podcasts then tv no shade to netflix but uh I prefer to read the case that I'll be presenting to you today. I first read about in the book at any cost, a father's betrayal, a wife's murder, and a 10 year war for justice by journalists, Rebecca Rosenberg and Salim Algar. It is the definitive and most extensive exploration of this family tragedy. I read the book last year for the first time, but I have reread it many times since to bring you this podcast. The story really sat with me the first time I read it, and just like the cliché goes, it has haunted me ever since. It's just one of those cases that really changes your perspective on true crime and even life itself. I knew when I started a true crime podcast from a child-free perspective, I had to take you through this story because it perfectly illustrates so many of the bingos that are thrown at us child-free folks. Plus, this case has it all. Sex, religion, money, courtroom drama, and... Even blackface. Yep, I said blackface. You can't see it, but my blackface is rolling her eyes. Every damn thing is thrown into this saga but the kitchen sink. But don't worry. There's a bathtub. Too soon? Anyways, you will understand that later. I'm here to bring you the heartbreaking, infuriating, and crazy-making story of a family legacy destroyed from the inside out by one of the biggest fuckboys in true crime history. I'm talking to you, Rod Kovlin. This is Sorry, Anna. Your father is a fuckboy. The Murder of Shelley Kovlin Part 1. And it's brought to you by the child-free bingo. Bingo! What about your legacy? So, listeners, let's all take a big ol' swig from that sippy cup. (coughs) This is true crime from a child-free perspective. Because if it breeds, it leads. Family Matters. What about your legacy? You came over after having left us during our family holiday vacation. You were full of anger. You crossed boundaries by grabbing and pushing me to the floor. It was not okay for our kids to witness that kind of behavior. Roderick, they see your behavior and they think it's okay to treat people like that or it's okay to be treated that way. They must not think that physical abuse is an option for handling anger. How would you feel if Anna was with a man who was physically abusive to her? That is a letter that Shelley Coughlin wrote to her husband, Rod. It's one of the many heartbreaking reasons I'm telling you this story. It's why the murder of Shelley will forever sit with me. Because for the life of me, I cannot understand the desperation one must feel to essentially tell your husband, if you're going to put your hands on me, please, not in front of the kids. We have a daughter. Do you want her to marry a man like you? Then imagine your husband getting that letter and days later going into yet another rage. That is my instant interpretation of Shelley's email, because knowing how she lived as a modern Orthodox Jewish woman who was deeply devoted to her faith and family, who essentially put her life on the line because she believed it was quote unquote, best for the kids to have a relationship with their father literally at any cost, the idea of don't abuse me in front of the kids would make sense to her. At any cost. You're going to hear that phrase a lot during this journey into the life, marriage, and murder of Shelley Kovlin. But what does at any cost mean? Well, we all know that sometimes chasing a dream can cost you everything. In the case of what Shelley wanted most in life, it would cost her everything, including her life. At any cost means the price is worth everything, so you will overlook anything, and when caught in a pronatalist narrative like the one that dominated Shelley's life, being able to put a grandchild in your parents' loving arms meant you'd do anything To fulfill that purpose. But at any cost has a bigger meaning for us as a society that is now telling all women and girls that they should be forced to give birth at any cost, whether it's financial, physical, mental, or emotional. Whether the cost is to one's health or at the cost of one's dignity, no cost can be too great to leave the legacy. Of children. So, how did we get here? Well, it all starts with a family. And what are the branches of this family tree, you ask? Well, ladies and victims first, so let's get to these branches through the roots of Shelley's family tree. Shelley's paternal grandfather, Jacob Daniszewski, was a Polish immigrant. He moved his young family from Brooklyn, New York, to Bayou, New Jersey, to live a simpler life, serving his community as a rabbi. Little did he know how the family name would be dragged through the mud. The central patriarch of this story, however, is Shelley's father, Joel Danishhevsky, a Depression-era baby. Little did he know how depressing a matter his family life would become in just a few decades. He went to a yeshiva and earned a degree in math and rabbinical studies. Like his father, Joel became a rabbi, but also served his community as a kosher butcher, called a shakhef in Yiddish, only to become a Wall Street financier. The matriarch is Shelley's mother, Jailene Danishevsky. She and Joel were married in 1956 and settled west of Bayonne, across the river in Elizabeth, New Jersey. She was a traditional homemaker. With Jaylene at his side, Joel got the sprawling, prosperous, and observant family that he worked so hard for, including maintaining a kosher home and observing the Sabbath. The family sprawl began with Fred. Born in 1960, and continued every two years. Following Fred was Shelley, then Eve, and finally Phil, born in 1966. Let's dive right into Shelley's childhood, which was pretty idyllic until it wasn't. Honestly, I think the first tragedy in Shelley's life was born out of her family's religious customs. These aren't broadly Jewish per se, but rather are specific to a particular cultural tradition hailing from Russia and the region. I believe the trauma you're going to learn about can be viewed as a prelude to things that would later come into her life in the form of marrying a man like Roderick Kovlin. Every Sabbath, the Danashevskis gathered at Shelley's maternal grandmother's home. Shabbat is the Jewish day of rest and happens weekly from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. During Shabbat, observant Jews remember the story of creation from the Torah when it is said God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. The family would gather for a traditional Jewish meal of challah bread, matzah ball soup, roast chicken, and kugel for dessert, which is a sweet, rich casserole made with noodles, butter, and cream cheese. Hashtag comfort food. Yum. <laughs> After eating, the adults would retire to a separate room to enjoy a cup of hot tea while the children played nearby. Since all cooking and all other work is prohibited during the Sabbath, observant Jewish families from Eastern Europe Often keep a sizable self heating urn of hot water, known as a samovar, set up for the duration of the holiday. Made of metal, they usually hold about a gallon of water. You can set a teapot on it so there is hot water throughout the weekly holiday. Shelley's grandmother kept an ornamented brass samovar in a cabinet above a small cutlery drawer. On this day, While the adults chatted, Shelley's childhood curiosity led her to note that the drawer slightly above her head was open, and trying to get a better look inside, as you do, poor Shelley grabbed it and tried to pull herself up to look inside. Instead, the entire cabinet tipped forward, and scalding water from the samovar splashed across her chest lower neck and upper arms like hot lava. Her panicked parents rushed her to the hospital, but the damage was done. She suffered severe third degree burns and would be bedridden enduring six weeks of excruciating procedures. Now, while I understand that accidents happen in childhood for all types of reasons and in all secular and religious cultures, this very first trauma for Shelley to her body and mind was no doubt the result of her family's faith. I am imagining that this original tragedy represents a betrayal by her faith. Since cooking isn't permitted due to her faith, a dangerous workaround was used by planting a massive canister of boiling water at a family gathering with young children around Yes, the samovar was reasonably well out of reach, but clearly not enough for the curious attention of a child. And from my vantage point, I see the event as a foreshadowing of things to come. You will see that in this story, I will discuss the harms of pronatalism and religion, often simultaneously, because they so often go hand in hand. It was a dedication to the obligations of her patriarchal faith, marriage, and motherhood that led Shelley Danishhevsky into the arms of Roderick Kovlin. Rod would turn out to be truly a monster of the gravest proportions, bringing nothing but Shrek, Yiddish for fear and terror, into their lives he would destroy and traumatize the Danishhevsky children for generations. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, so let's get back to Shelley's childhood. Now, the truth is that Shelley was accident-prone throughout her childhood. She ended up getting bit in the face by the family dog, running through a plate-glass window, and jumping into some kind of dirt pit, resulting in her hitting her head and needing stitches. But the severe third-degree burns that she experienced during Sabbath at just three years old caused the only physical scars that she kept for the rest of her life. And they were the only scars that were the result of her faith. After this accident, Shelley would deal with low self-esteem due to the permanent, unsightly marks on her arms, chest, and neck. She turned to binge eating, which resulted in weight gain, and that led to a vicious cycle of self-loathing. To cover her body, her family said she'd only wear long sleeves and turtlenecks, even on the hottest summer days, and refused to go swimming. But aside from dealing with the aftermath of the accident... The Danishhevsky girls had a pretty typical childhood. Eve and Shelley shared a bedroom, and Eve said they had every possible doll imaginable and loved to play with them. They also loved fairy tales like Cinderella. Of course, together they'd think about their future as wives to Prince Charming's and as mothers to their adorable babies. Shelley was described as nurturing, with a maternal instinct, even as a child. But often, what we call maternal instinct is really pro-motherhood conditioning and the coerced adultification of girls. For example, Shelly's mother ended up getting very sick when she was around 10 years old and was often gone for long stretches of time getting treatments. As the eldest daughter, Shelley was expected to step in as mother to her siblings. Notice how her older brother did not have to play that role. So it wasn't about age and experience, but gender. She was a girl. There's an expectation that boys can still be boys. Even if we expect them to man up, it's not to be fathers. Hashtag Nick Cannon. But... Boys, get toy guns, or in red states, real guns and play war. Girls, on the other hand, are meant to woman up into motherhood by practicing with dolls and diapers. And remember, the most realistic baby dolls are still the most coveted. In this way, being child-free will always hit differently for us ladies than it does for the dudes. Just saying. Now. Even with the conditioning, I do not doubt that Shelley wanted nothing more than to be a mother at her very core. In fact, I believe she wanted to be a mother more than she wanted to be a wife. But in her faith and all other patriarchal ones, that was not an option that would garner her any applause. The orthodox familial expectations that were laid on Shelley would never have led her to be a single mother. Before the pregnancy tests, there'd better be a wedding. He'd better put a ring on it. <laughs> her faith did emphasize education, and while Shelley was never an academic powerhouse like the rest of her siblings, she still went to college. In her case, it was to the less prestigious Pace University in New York City, but she lived on campus. And while a freshman in college, her low self-esteem and weight literally dissolved, melted off. Shelley began to take more of an interest in her appearance, and she did what we call these days a glow up. She found her career path on Wall Street with her brother and her father, and they started their own wealth management business, the Danishevsky Group. Due to their impeccable reputation and consistent profitability, in early 2009, they would be lured from Merrill Lynch to banking giant, UBS. They were managing upwards of 600 million with an M in client funds. And before long, Shelly's career was taking off. Entering Prince Harming. Stage left. Shelley's glow up in college transformed her from a chubby, insecure wallflower into the kind of woman who could compete professionally on Wall Street and hold her own in the dating games of New York City. So, what's next for a good? Orthodox girl who's finally reached her stride professionally? Well, look for her Prince Charming in a yarmulke, of course. After all, her father was itching for grandkids. So what was life like for Shelley as a single, modern, orthodox Jewish woman? Watch out, Carrie Bradshaw. Sorry, I couldn't resist. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Women like Shelley are often viewed as poor, unfortunate things or nebbishes in Yiddish. They are almost always pitied as someone who have not had much luck or success in life because they remain single. The stigma primarily comes from the fact that many of the orthodox obligations for adult women are tied to being married. And as a single woman, well into her 30s, imagine how Shelley felt surrounded by wives and mothers at synagogue and at large family functions. In a 2016 article in the Washington Post entitled, In Orthodox Jewish Circles, Single Women Are Largely Forgotten, single women in the modern Orthodox community share similar experiences of feeling slighted by community members. Because they were not married. Aaron London, a 31-year-old rabbinical student at Yeshivat Maharat in the Bronx, wrote in an email, quote, slowly you start to realize your single status and realize that even though you might have a master's degree or be accomplished in your work, people in the religious community still talk to you as if you're in high school, end quote. Toby, a 38-year-old psychotherapist in Manhattan said, quote, I feel like I'm doing something wrong because I'm not married. And then they feel this need to tell me what I'm doing wrong, end quote. The separation between married and single Orthodox Jews goes beyond religious responsibilities. It is embedded in the culture, too. Many single women said couples and families tend to not invite them over for Shabbat meals. As a result, they end up feeling isolated, not just at weddings or family milestone events, but every week. The ritual of sharing a Shabbat meal with family, friends, or community members is a cornerstone of Orthodox culture. The former executive director of the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, Sharon Weiss-Greenberg, challenges the stigma of being seen as a Nebek, as an unwed woman and advocates for the better treatment of singles in her community. She believes the high value on being married starts with the first mitzvah. In its primary meaning, the Hebrew word mitzvah refers to a commandment instructed by God to be performed as a religious duty. The first one described in the Torah, mitzvah 43, is, quote, you shall be fruitful and multiply, end quote. While this line can be interpreted in different ways, many view it as a commandment to have children. And some, such as Rabbi Aryeh Citron, Dean of Yeshiva College in Miami Beach, Florida, view it as a directive to, quote, have as many children as possible, end quote. I'm going to read several more from Mitzvah 43 that reinforce the message that a marriage made in heaven must include children, and a lot of them. Quote, it is a mitzvah to get married, to have children and raise a family, End quote. Quote, one should strive to have many children since each additional child is like building a world, quote. quote. both men and women should always strive to be married, End quote. quote. a person should pray for help in finding the right shibuk. Parents should also pray for their children, End quote. A quote is an arranged marriage. Quote, it is not good for a person to be alone, end quote. Quote, have you been involved in the mitzvah to procreate? End quote. <laughs> so, that's a lot. <laughs> Can it be any more clear? So, between the stigma of being single and God's commandment to be a mother, all Shelley heard was... and not the fun kind of TikTok either. She and Eve barely heard the sounds on the dance floor or the sounds of their heels on the pavement as they would head out on the town looking for their future husbands. Both single and ready to mingle in the late 80s and 90s modern Orthodox Jewish dating scene, they were having fun, but Shelly, always the go-getter type, had her eyes on the prize. Mark Goldman, co-founder of the popular online dating service, saw you at Sinai, echoed a common sentiment that men have it easier than women, saying there are approximately nine single men for every 10 single women and many more women than men who are newly orthodox. So it was into this dating pool that Shelley waited every night when she and Eve went out on those Jewish singles mixers, like the one she'd go to and stumble into the arms of Roderick Kovlin, literally, setting the alarm on her biological clock even louder. Little Sister Eve, at the age of 29, already found her tall South African financier named Mark to marry. Not only that, she had brought forth a son. Talk about pressure on Shelly. The amazing career just wasn't going to cut it. Sorry, sis. Shelly had dated quite a few duds, according to her sister. It wasn't for lack of trying that she was still single. As a highly successful professional woman, you would think Shelley would have her pick of the litter. But unfortunately, career success doesn't make a woman a catch. Unless of course, he's looking for a sponsor. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We know all she wanted was to be a mother and therefore a wife too. Her ideal was a devout Jewish husband who was religiously flexible enough to enjoy modern life. And then in walked Roderick Kovlin with game that quite literally stopped Shelley in her tracks. Eve recalls the phone call she received from Shelley the night of February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day, 1998, when Roderick, the snake, First came slithering into their lives. Shelley gushed and giggled to her sister. Quote, I've met my soulmate, and we're on our way to the airport. We're going to fly to Las Vegas. We're getting married. He says he loves me, and he says we're going to have a happy life together with a house full of kids. End quote. Shelley, then 36, had met. Roderick Kovlin, 25, just a few hours prior at La Barbat, a now shuttered Manhattan restaurant and music venue on West 57th Street near Columbus Circle. Like something out of a cheesy lifetime movie, but then again, all lifetime movies are cheesy, and that's why we love them. They were passing each other on a stairwell, at the venue, and when Shelley lost her balance and nearly fell over, Rod catching her before impact, looked up into her eyes from a lower step and playfully asked, "Will you marry me? Hmm. You know how it goes. There you are, a desperate older woman held closely in the arms of a six two steel, blue-eyed ivy league educated younger man. That's hot. <laughs> How many chances like this come along to get the man and those babies all in one swoop? Or should I say scoop? Because he scooped her up in her arms. Get it? Anyway, Shelly and her family didn't stand a chance. Let's face it. She fell for him. Fortunately, Eve was able to talk her older sister out of eloping in Vegas. Not so fortunately, Shelly and Rod would be engaged in just six weeks. Both Eve and her husband Mark thought the whole episode was wildly out of character for Shelley. Eventually, Shelley would give Eve the details on her promising new suitor. Enter stage left Prince Harming. Rod, a muscular martial arts enthusiast raised as a traditional Jew, he earned a civil engineering degree from Columbia University in 2004. After transferring from a polytechnic institute in Troy, in upstate New York, Rod presented himself as a budding tech startup entrepreneur on the cusp of success. Shelley outlined her own impressive credentials and lucrative career in finance the night they met. Rod was definitely paying very close attention. Sensing a meal ticket, Rod's pursuit of Shelley accelerated. He lavished her with chocolates, flowers, and gifts almost daily and constantly reiterated his desire for a large family. Shelley had met her prince. Rod grew up in the affluent New York suburb of New Rochelle, just 45 minutes north of Manhattan in a simple two-story home at the end of a manicured cul-de-sac. His father, Dave Kovlin, had a dry cleaning business and later became a mid-level stockbroker while his mother, Carol, worked as a pharmacist. He had only one sibling An older sister named Eva. I know, Eve, Eva. It might get confusing, but don't worry. We won't talk about Eva much because Rod was the golden child. Not much is known about Rod's relationship to Eva or their parents. But it's clear that Rod was the golden child and the golden son at that. All that adoration didn't likely do anything to minimize what would later be identified as narcissistic tendencies. Carol Kovlin grew up Jewish in New York, the daughter of Harriet and Joseph Steinberg, her mother, a traditional homemaker like Jaylene, and her father, a stockbroker. But her husband, Dave, was born in Bismarck, North Dakota, and raised as a Lutheran on a Native American reservation. I know. You saw that coming a mile away. (laughs) I sure didn't. As a white man, Dave felt that he had experienced reverse discrimination as a child. Definitely saw that coming. And in a rejection of his Christian parents and their faith, he converted to Orthodox Judaism and then married Carol. Hmm the young Kovlins were not as observant as Shelley's family. They didn't keep kosher or observe the Sabbath, but they did enjoy a strong cultural connection to their religion by celebrating holidays and attending synagogue regularly. Rod began to exhibit despicable behavior even as a young boy. At just four years old, he would engage in animal cruelty. He gleefully watched as he blew up frogs to pieces with firecrackers. As a runty kid, he became the target of bullies, but he matched their violence and menace, so he was constantly getting into fights. Now, while for the Danishhevskys, loving family is what mattered most, for the Kovlins, family was about control, and cruelty when Carol's father Joseph invited Dave to work with him as a stockbroker to help his struggling family get on their feet Joseph soon regretted it when their personal relationship soured Dave had the audacity to insist that Joseph relinquish half of his client base a client base he had worked decades to build when Joseph refused, naturally, grandson Rod stepped in and threatened to accuse his own grandfather of sexually abusing him when he was a child. Hmm. The tactic worked, and his poor grandfather ended up handing over the client list. This would not be the last time Rod would use false sexual abuse allegations to manipulate his own family to get what he wanted. And as expected, this accusation would cause a permanent rift in the Kovlin-Steinberg family. According to the book referenced at the start of this episode at any cost, Shelley knew about his sick history. Rod confessed to her that he had fabricated the whole thing. Knowing that he would lie about something so vile in order to get his father the upper hand in a business dispute should have given Shelley pause. But she was so charmed and hypnotized by his image, so thoroughly convinced that they both wanted the same things in life, that she was willing to overlook something so reprehensible, something so clearly demonstrating that he was anything but a family man. Shelley could believe that Rod was her family man, but God help her if she came between him and something he wanted. First comes marriage, pointing to the many red flags, okay, let's face it, the goddamn carnival that Rod and his family were putting on shows how desperate Shelly was for that dream of marriage and motherhood. But while you're following a dream built on a shaky foundation, the bingo, bingo, what about your legacy? Will be propped up by pronatalism even while pronatalism is the very reason why your legacy crumbles under your feet. When you're committed to getting to the part where you're saying, I do, and cradling your newborn, you're willing to overlook anything and everything that threatens your dream. You may even delude yourself into thinking that you're marrying a family man who would be more at home in an organized crime family. (laughs) But this saga doesn't have anywhere near the charm of the Sopranos. It wasn't just Shelley. All the Danishevskys saw these red flags waving around Rod and his troubled family. They witnessed the dysfunctional dynamics within the Kovlin household, where Rod was still living at the time of his engagement to Shelley. They overlooked it because they were just so darn happy that she had finally secured an engagement. Joel even offered to pay for the wedding. It was supposed to be a happy occasion, but Carol and Dave managed to turn the wedding planning into one drama after the other with increasingly outrageous demands of their soon-to-be in-laws. All of which the Danishevsky family placated for the greater good of wanting to see Shelley happily pregnant. Joel even gave in when the Kovlins stomped on his only wish, which was to be the rabbi at his daughter's wedding. He was the rabbi at all of his other children's ceremonies the tensions between the two families that began during the wedding planning would only escalate during the marriage. With a history of Carol and Dave nursing perceived slights, it's a witch hunt! I mean, look at what went down with his own father-in-law. <laughs> they were always in their feelings about something that the Danishhevskys allegedly did to disrespect them. Are we sure this isn't a crime family? The fuck? And poor Shelley. She was caught in the middle. Rod would keep his parents' feuds well-fueled, raging on about the same nonsense. But time and time again, the Danishhevskys would placate the Kovlins to keep the peace, to try and keep Shelley happy, and to keep their doomed legacy going. The big wedding day was September 7th, 1998. Before 200 guests at the Marriott Hotel in Teaneck, New Jersey, Shelley was a beaming, picture-perfect bride with her then-shoulder-length curly brown hair. Adorning her hand was a glittering 2.5-carat pear-cut diamond engagement ring. Around her neck was draped a triple string of pearls set off with matching earrings. Her dress was a delicate, flowing, ethereal gown with a high neckline with sleeves that extended to an elegant point at the back of each hand, no doubt to cover her scars. This was the day that she had been dreaming about her whole life. The day once played out with Eve as little girls, with their legions of dolls, with fits of giggles and no shortage of stars in their eyes, imagining their romantic and maternal destinies. Shelley looked the part, and if you saw photos of her and Rod that day, you would have thought they were cast in the roles of prince and princess, about to gallop off on his trusty steed. But unfortunately for Shelley, the honeymoon was over before the honeymoon was over. (laughs) Five days into their honeymoon, Rod devastated Shelly by announcing that he would be flying back to New York for his parents' wedding anniversary. Poor Shelly was so mortified, she didn't tell anyone about the incident until many years later. That wouldn't be the last time the toxic tentacles of Rod's parents, Carol and Dave, would creep into Shelly and Rod's marriage. Shelly was living in a luxury apartment on the Upper West Side, just steps from Lincoln Center. If you are a fan of the show Only Murders in the Building, which is set in the Dorchester Towers, it's in the same neighborhood. The apartment was owned by Joel. Previously, Eve lived in an adjacent studio, but when she got married, she moved out. As a gift to the newlyweds, Joel graciously combined the two apartments to provide an even larger space for their hopefully soon-to-be-growing family. After the honeymoon, Rod left his parents home to move in with Shelley. Now under the same roof, it was time for the fun part. Time to decorate their home. You would think that would be Shelley's job, being the homemaker and all. <laughs> think again. The wedding gift from her new in-laws, Dave and Carol, was an oversized surrealist painting by Polish artist Tomek Satowski in an ornate gold frame called Queen of Spades Castle. The bizarre piece featured a montage of sinister images, including a grinning man wearing a blindfold and horns, a set of winding stairs, leading up to a tower that looks like a chess piece and the disembodied head of a queen attached to a fish tail in a word charming displayed in the living room Shelley would grimace each time she had to set eyes on the thing when she gently suggested that they could perhaps display the work in a less prominent corner of their shared home and also that his parents had said they could exchange it for another gift, Rod (laughs) swiftly became offended and enraged. The painting would remain, and as the centerpiece of their home, lurking above the living room sofa, despite how Shelley felt about it. So apparently this was Queen of Spades' castle, but clearly not Shelley's castle. Anyway, um... So imagine you're in your mid 30s and you're letting a 25 year old husband who just moved into your home after living with his parents tell you how to decorate your house. Okay. You suggest moving or exchanging a painting you hate, but wait, that would alert your unstable husband's unstable parents that you didn't like it. Meaning in their minds, you didn't like them. Also meaning in his mind, you didn't like him. Yet another slight against the already persecuted Kovlins. You don't need any more of that smoke as a newlywed. Talk about a gift with all the strings attached. Every time I read the book on this case, I notice something new. I hear something different. And it finally occurs to me that Rod's parents did this shit on purpose. Like who buys someone a large work of art in a style that psychology and art professors spend whole careers unpacking? Are meditative water lilies in soft pastels no longer a thing? Maybe a still life with pears or peaches? How about a watercolor, you know? Georgia O'Keeffe? If it can't be hung in a doctor's waiting room, how about we just not with the works of art as wedding gifts? I'm just saying, I honestly believe that Carolyn and Dave did this on purpose to cause drama. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Then comes baby in the baby carriage. So imagine being the breadwinner and providing the roof over his head, but still allowing this man turd to dominate you. I truly feel for Shelley. The kovlin Danishevsky union wasn't about celebrating a budding familial legacy and mutual respect. No, it was about a tug of war between the toxic Kovlins and the cowed and confused Danishevskys, with poor Shelly caught squarely in the middle, thanks to Rod. But he continued to dazzle as much as he dominated. Hmm. She gave in to his wants because her only desire was, let's all say it together, to have his babies. Throughout the history of the Jewish people, there has held an ideal standard of Jewish family life that is manifested in the term shalom bayit. In Jewish culture, a marriage is described as a match made in heaven. Shelley desperately wanted to believe she had met her match in Rod. And on the surface, from the outside, The marriage appeared to fulfill her dreams. While getting pregnant, the usual low-cost way didn't work. A determined Shelly got pregnant after her first round of IVF. Nine months later, when she held her daughter Anna in her arms for the first time, the darkness of a barren future shed away. Let's face it. This woman had prepartum depression. She had finally fulfilled her purpose as an Orthodox Jewish woman, marriage, and motherhood. To his fatherly credit, Rod was said to dote on Anna. He shared the childcare duties, ooing and aahing over his cherub faced baby daughter. Whoo hoo! Sure, being a father. Biscuit and gold star for you. Shelley, of course, loved to see it. It went a long way to smooth over any of the other disturbances that would begin to creep in. Maybe now, finally, she would have the life she dreamed of. (laughs) Unfortunately, when Anna was just a month old, Rod's obsession with the game of backgammon finally revealed itself. Ta-da! You didn't see that coming, did you? Yeah, it threw me too. Rod announced to Shelly that he would be leaving for a few days to attend a backgammon tournament. When Shelly told Eve, she feared for her sister's marriage. (laughs) Leaving your wife with a one-month-old to attend a backgammon tournament? Sure, sounds legit. But Shelly didn't seem to mind she was still oohed and awed by the way that Rod held and looked at Anna. Like most new mothers, she seemed to believe that her husband's commitment to their children would only deepen the love between them and strengthen their marriage. But Eve's fears were well-founded. And Shelley, she couldn't have been more wrong, as you're about to learn. A new mom at 42, Shelley was eager to get pregnant again because Anna needed a little sister or brother, of course. Even though Rod had started harassing her about not losing the baby weight, Shelley ignored him and kept her eyes on the prize, getting pregnant again. Maybe she made the same mistake many women make. Thinking that having another kid would miraculously make her mate less of an asshole. Shelley deserved a husband who worshiped the ground she walked on. She deserved the fulfillment of her girlhood fantasies. But not only do princes from perfect families not exist in the world as we imagine them, just as Megan. Shelley could not accept the truth about the prince harming she married. This was about to change. Although seeing Rod with his daughter would melt Shelley's heart and please her parents, her family began to wake to the realization that the prince was more of a parasite. As time rolled on, Rod's addiction to backgammon gambling led him to pursue it professionally. This occurred away from home and online when home. The entire family noticed that even at family functions, when he wasn't acting like a weirdo or being an asshole towards everyone, he was off in a room doing what he loved most. Hint, not porn. Well, maybe porn, but we're getting ahead of ourselves again. Shelly was working overtime as the sole breadwinner while her husband traveled around playing Batgammon. When he was around, he'd argue with her family and friends, including at synagogue. But in the midst of that, Shelly got the amazing news that she was pregnant with twins. Yeah. It was a miracle because at her age, even with another round of IVF to get those eggs a rolling, let's just say the odds were not in her favor. Personally, I like my eggs unfertilized. Nevertheless, her prayers to God were answered and the Kavlan crew would expand to five. Joel and Jaylene would be blessed. With not one but three grandkids. But what none of them foresaw was that this pregnancy would be a difficult one and almost cost Shelley her life. Doctors warned her that the pregnancy would be a challenge. Knowing that, Shelley promised to do everything she could to bring her unborn daughters into this world. The pregnancy was taxing. She struggled with unexplained bouts of bleeding and intense pain during her first two trimesters. Even though doctors ordered her on bed rest shortly before her final trimester, her condition continued to worsen. Doctors warned Shelley that her pregnancy would be a challenge. Knowing that, she promised her two unborn daughters that she would do everything in her power to bring them safely into the world. The pregnancy was taxing. She struggled with unexplained bouts of bleeding and intense pain during her first two trimesters. Even though doctors ordered her on bed rest shortly before her final trimester, her condition worsened. Her cervix began to shorten and open dangerously early, putting her at risk for preterm labor. Her doctors worked at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center, which is considered one of the top facilities in the country. It was there that she was scheduled for a simple procedure known as a cervical cerclage to sew her cervix closed and prevent premature birth. Following the procedure, as the OBGYN stitched her up, the situation quickly grew dire when she suffered a placental abruption in which the placenta detaches from the uterus, thereby depriving her fetuses of oxygen and nutrients. Suddenly going into labor, not only were her twin daughter's lives in peril, but so was her own. Shelley survived, but at just six months' gestation, her twin girls did not. While her own family was at her bedside, stunned, and in mourning, Rod, their father, was gearing up for a fight with the hospital. He saw litigation over the death of his children as his next big get-rich scheme. Even in her fog of heavy grief, Rod badgered Shelley to initiate a lawsuit against the hospital, later dragging her around to appointments with personal injury lawyers, until finally she put her foot down for once and told Rod, "No, I'm not doing this," as Shelley mourned. Rod insulted her for not losing her baby weight, calling her "fat." Despite such emotional cruelty, Shelley refocused on having another baby. A Band-Aid baby? Maybe. But that baby would have to come out with its very own tool belt to fix what's wrong with this family. Seven months after the death of her twin baby girls, Shelly started another round of IVF. But this time, it was determined that her eggs were no longer viable. So they decided to use an egg donated from a fertility clinic. It was fertilized with rods Demon. Demon. and implanted into Shelley's unsuspecting uterus. Shelley was elated when her belly began to swell with a new baby. On September 26, 2006, she gave birth to a healthy, bouncing baby boy. They named Miles with a Y. But he wasn't born with a tool belt. Shelley's life finally felt complete. She had the husband and was able to give her parents another beautiful grandchild to spoil on Hanukkah. OK, who are we kidding? Year-round spoiling from both sets of grandparents. But what was her life like as Mrs. Shelley Kovlin? Well, for starters, She would be the sole breadwinner because everything that Rod made, he spent on himself and his various vices, one of many being backgammon. And we began this episode with the letter that Shelley wrote Rod about his rages and his violence and her pleading with him to not display that kind of behavior in front of their children. The marriage didn't look anything like her girlhood fantasies of a happily ever after with a prince charming. Because unfortunately for Shelley, as with many women who are primarily driven by a biological clock, alarms are amplified with cultural or religious norms. Pressures to marry and become mothers, literally at any cost, rarely produce a happily ever after, despite the fairy tales that little girls are raised on. I will get into more details about their marriage in our next episode. But, as a teaser, maybe this will give you some kind of idea about the kind of husband and father Roderick Coughlin turned out to be. On their 10-year wedding anniversary, Rod booked a date night to a romantic restaurant with his lovely, loving, and loyal wife, Shelley. Then, he leaned across the table. He held her delicate hands in his. He looked deeply into her beautiful green eyes. And as casually as if he were asking, should we get dessert, babe? Instead, he proposed that they have an open marriage. (laughs) Now, being the sweet, sensitive guy that Rod was, he didn't just spring this question on his wife. Oh, no. Shelly already knew that he was having an affair. Shelly had stumbled across an email exchange with another woman that Rod left open on his computer. No doubt, this was Rod's way of softening the blow to Shelley. He knew he was going to ask for an open marriage on their 10th wedding anniversary date night. So while Shelley knew before the date night that he was cheating, she certainly did not think he was going to ask for that. In fact, Shelley was so distraught when she saw the emails that the mirage of their perfect marriage that she had been dutifully maintaining to her family and friends finally fell away. After the discovery, she texted her sister Eve and asked, quote, what in the world do I get him for our 10-year anniversary knowing that he's cheating on me? Now, Shelley, being a modern Orthodox woman, wanted to save her marriage at any cost for the kids. She feared not only the stigma of divorce, but that it would result in less time with her kids, and shared custody. In spite of her grueling work schedule and the fact that she was the sole parent funding the lifestyle of her family, she had never spent a single night away from Anna and Miles, unlike Rod, of course. In fact, Shelley told her sister about her painful dilemma. Quote, Anna said a week ago, she doesn't want to be the daughter of divorced parents. I'm completely stuck and I don't know how to handle this. End quote. Now, Shelly, being the loving mother that she was, she always put her kids first, even above herself. That is why my interpretation of that email to Rod that began this episode was in fact her saying, do whatever you want to me. Just don't do it in front of the kids. So... After everything that Shelly endured in her marriage to Rod, even through his callous anniversary question, would his cheating be the last straw? And trust me, you have not heard the half of it. Would that finally be the last straw for Shelly to recognize her worth and finally dump this freaking zero? Join me for part two of this story. We hope you enjoyed this episode presented by Child Free Media Limited. To stay current with child-free content like this, please visit childfreemedia.com and subscribe to the newsletter.